You're listening to an audio message from The Well, a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com. To Joshua 22, beginning in verse 1. At that time, Joshua summoned the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh and said to them, You have kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, and have obeyed my voice and all that I have commanded you. You have not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to keep his commandments, and to cling to him, and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them, sent them away, and they went to their tents. Out of the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession in Bashan. But to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. And when Joshua sent them away to their homes and blessed them, he said to them, Go back to your tents with much wealth, very much wealth, with much wealth and with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan to go to the land of Gilead, their own land of which they had possessed themselves by command of the Lord through Moses. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it said, Behold, the people of Reuben, people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan, in the region about the Jordan, on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Then the people of Israel sent to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, and with him ten chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans of Israel. And they came to the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh in the land of Gilead, and they said to them, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, What is this breach of faith that you have committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord? And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he will be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, pass over into the Lord's land. 
where the Lord's tabernacle stands, and take for yourselves a possession among us. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us as rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of the devoted things and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel? And he did not perish alone for his iniquity. Then the people of Reuben, the people of Gad, the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the heads of the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, the Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know. If it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or, if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, we did, did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you, you people of Reuben and people of Gad. You have no portion in the Lord. So your children might say to our children, might make our children cease to worship the Lord. And therefore we said, let us now build an altar not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings. So your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought, if this should be said to us or to our descendants in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings nor for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice, other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before the tabernacle. When Phineas the priest and the chiefs of the congregation, the heads of the families of Israel who were with him, heard the words that the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh spoke, it was good in their eyes. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest, said to the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the people of Manasseh, Today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you have not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you have delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. Then Phinehas, the son of Eleazar the priest and the chiefs, returned from the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the land of Gilead to the land of Canaan, the people of Israel, and brought back word to them. And the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God and spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people of Reuben and the people of Gad were settled. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad called the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. I'm going to pray for us. As I pray, 
would you pray also? Father, um, stand before you this morning and before your church with your word open um, in trembling in fear. And Father, I pray that... um, I pray that you would create that same kind of trembling and fear in our hearts any time that we open your word. And I pray, Father, that you would come and speak now uh, to each of us in this room by the power of your spirit. I pray, God, that you would speak into the broken places and the pride-filled places and the hurting places of our hearts. Help us to become a people who love you with our lives. I pray, God, that you would, uh, in the midst of all of this, turn our attention to the cross of Christ and the empty tomb of Christ and the promise of heaven for those who trust trust you to do this work and then some. Jesus name. Amen. You may be seated. In the context of the book of Joshua, pause there for a moment. Context is a very important dynamic of interpreting the scriptures. So in the context of the book of Joshua, we have the nation of Israel entering into the promised land, conquering her enemies, taking possession of the land, even though she never fully possesses the full inheritance of the land. Now in this passage and in the last three chapters, really, Um, we have uh, a collection of farewell messages. Farewell to the west side tribes in this chapter. Farewell to the east side in the next one. And then farewell to Joshua and the whole book in the last chapter. So that's where we're at the last three weeks. It's the last portion of the book. And in this chapter, what we have is the first hints Not really the first hints, probably not the best. Anyways, we have hints of uh, disunity and conflict that begin to surface as the nation of Israel settles into the land. And you might have noticed that the conflict itself is centered on what appears to be very biblical reasons. Context is important. One of the first rules of biblical interpretation is that there's three circles of context. There's the immediate context of the the chapter and verse that you're reading in that section. Second level of context is basically kind of the book and the genre um, of of writing. Uh, The third level of context is the entire Bible. Before you begin to make an interpretive declaration from the text you've got to look at those contexts first if you don't do that you rip passages out of context and you try to support some ideology 
or belief system that you bought into. It's called proof texting. Church is really good at it. Well-meaning Christians have been doing this for a long time. So I start with context because that is the first place you start. Oftentimes we um, don't do the hard work of biblical interpretation. Oftentimes we kind of put a veil over the reason why we don't do good biblical interpretation as Christians. We'll say, I'm not very good at that. When in reality, I don't want to take the time to do that. So it's a veiled confession that covers up the sin in my heart. And I want to protect us against that. Love God's word. If something arises within me whenever I see someone ripping a passage out of context. And so my hope every Sunday morning is to put this on display for you in the way that I communicate. I hope that that would be what happens this morning. Because once again, the context seems to dictate that there is a massive conflict happening in the text between the people of Israel. And the reason for the conflict appears to be two sides that would claim to have very biblical reasons for the war that they are making with each other. So I'm making that statement up front, and I'm asking you to go ahead and test me, as you should every Sunday, by being good Bereans, even though we're Baptists. And it's a reference to the book of Acts, when the Bereans tested everything that Paul said. So please test what I say by the context. Let the context of the passage make the point and make sure that the point that I make is actually the point of the text. When you get that backwards, when you get that backwards, you have wholesale ripping apart of the scriptures and their intended meaning, oftentimes for good reasons. And what happens is you wind up with heresy. So with that in mind, take a look at the text. First thing we see, West Side tribes return home. I think you might agree with me. The West Side tribes return home in the first nine verses. What Joshua does is he gathers the Reubenites, he gathers the Gadites, he gathers the half-tribe of Manasseh uh, together. They are the West Side tribes, I say. I don't know what the West Side sign is, but they're the West Side, right? Okay. So you've got the West Side tribes, he gathers them together, and he prepares to send them home. He affirms their commitment. He affirms their obedience to the Lord. He affirms uh, their obedience to his own leadership of them. They simply did not sit at home on the west side of the Jordan on their thumbs while their brothers and their sisters fought for their land on the east side of the Jordan. That's what's happening first few And before sending them off, Joshua blesses them after he instructs them to do what? To love God, to obey God's commands, to cling to God, to serve God with their entire beings. That's a major theme in the scriptures, that commandment. 
So it's not an implication of the text. It's actually an explicit directive of the text. As Joshua sends off those two and a half west side tribes, he also instructs them to do what? Divide the spoils of war among themselves as they resettle in the land that they had conquered earlier, according to the command of the Lord under Moses' leadership. Is that an implication for us that we should go divide the spoils of war? No. That would be ripping a text out of context. Agree? We might disagree. We should talk afterwards if we do. Okay? So I think this had to have been an exciting moment for these West Side tribes as they return home with these instructions to love God, obey God, cling to God, and serve God wholeheartedly. So it seems to me out of these first nine verses that the meaning of that portion of the text is simply uh, that loving God, obeying God, clinging to God, serving God wholeheartedly, that's a very serious matter for God's people. What it seems like in terms of meaning. We've often used the illustration um, that if I wrote a letter to my wife that was intended to say, I love you, and someone took that letter and uh, proof texted it like we often like to do with the Bible and uh, maybe in that letter I also wrote something um, uh, that was personal between us and our relationship that talks about maybe some conflict and argument that we had and somebody took that little chunk out of there and then used that to prove the point that I in fact hated my wife that would bring dishonor to the intended meaning of the text and also, dishonor to the author of the text. Read. This is what happens when we misapply, misinterpret, rip things out of context. This is a heavy theme for me um, this week. Second thing we see in the text um, is the conflict begins in verses 10 through 20. In those 10 verses, the two and a half west side tribes, they build a massive altar on the east side of the Jordan River. It wasn't built on their side, the west side of the river, was built on the other side, the east side of the river, in the land that belonged to the east side tribes. So when the east side tribes hear the news, what do they do? They gather together to make war against their brothers in the west. Crazy how God's people would do this, isn't it? In some regard, both sides holding Bibles in their hands, going to war with each other. How does this happen? So here we have an early account of the civil wars that are going to soon erupt among God's people in the promised land, albeit for much worse reasons down the road. But the nine and a half tribes, those east side tribes, they they send ten delegates under the leadership of a dude named Phineas. Love the name. They send them to confront the two and a half west side tribes. Now, personally, as I'm studying the text, reading, I can feel the tension building. Attention builder. This is a Braveheart moment in a movie, isn't it? Right? Braveheart. I like Braveheart. Particularly like his sword. I have one in my office. Phineas also had a brother named Ferb. (laughs) That would be an argument from silence. (laughs) 
in terms of biblical interpretation, because we don't know if he had a brother or not, but uh, I'm not going to waste our time any longer. <laughs> it's a platypus. I don't know where the platypus is at. Probably a quiver for some arrows. So personally, as I'm looking at this, I, I can feel the tension building as this 11-leader uh, uh, war council, I would call it. They, they march toward the West Side tribes. They're armed for confrontation, agreed? They're ready to go. This is a holy war at its best in the text, agreed? And really at this point in the story, I mean, I realize we read the whole text, so it's a little different for us because we're looking backwards on it. But at this point in the text, in the way that the... The narrator is telling the story. You don't really understand why. Like, all you really know is, man, they can build a pile of rocks. Who gives a rip, right? But these nine and a half tribes, they got something in a wad, and they're upset about it. You get to uh, verses 16 through 20, you kind of begin to see things a little bit more clearly. Think about Phineas. I love this guy. Phineas is the leader of the eleven. I think Phineas is most likely their spokesperson, in my understanding of my from my study. Just gotta ask the question: who is this Phineas guy? Who is he? Where'd he come from? Right? I love Phineas. I love the heavy heavy metal band named Phineas too. So who is Phineas? Why did the East Side tribes choose him to lead their war council? These are questions of interpretation. You don't, you don't just read these passages for five minutes and then set it down and then go back about your day. Um, these are questions we all should ask, right? Who is Phineas? Why did they choose him? Here's the thing. Phineas was a godly, a passionate, fearless leader. He took God's commands about holiness and obedience very seriously. You should test out what I'm saying to you. You should not sit there nodding your heads like bobblehead dolls, right? You should not trust it just because I make the big bucks and I don't have any credentials. Um, but you should, just, you should not just do that. You should go do the work yourself. You're, you're Christians, those of you who are Christians and you have Bibles. Challenging you. Don't only do it with me. Do this with anybody who opens the Bible in front of you. And ensure that what you are hearing is true. Because a lot of things have been done in the name of truth that have this little bit of falsehood in them. And Christians for generations, going all the way back to here, have been known to be sitting there on their lazy little thumbs, nodding their heads. The lack of power in the church today because we don't study our Bibles for all it's worth. So you got Phineas. Godly, passionate, fearless leader. And he took God's commands about holiness and obedience very seriously. So much so, listen to this, here's Phineas. He took this so seriously that back in the wilderness of wandering, Numbers chapter 25 for your reference, back in the wilderness of wandering, he used his spear. He's a pastor. And he carried a spear. I don't know why. But I think it's cool. Carried a spear. And what he does next blows my mind. And I don't think you should make a case for church discipline on this at all. I think that would be a prostitution of the scriptures. 
This, this happens one time, but it's still very interesting. Takes his spear, kills two professing believers with his spear. Not unbelievers out there in the big old bad world, people that we're at war against out there. Actually kills two professing believers, believers in the church, so to speak. Why? Because they were having sex next to the tabernacle or possibly inside the tabernacle, depending upon your perspective of the text. And it's okay to have a disagreement there and not divide and make war with each other. But it's one of those two places. Either way, he's filled full of righteous indignation. Now, the tabernacle, you need to understand, was a modern-day mobile church building. They had a massive team that did set up and tear down with this thing in the wilderness as they moved around. So all of y'all that have been with us for a long time remember this days of set up and tear down. Might remember those days of tabernacling for us. So Phineas seems to be the right man to lead this war council and his questions that he asks of the West Side tribes, they, uh, they kind of make it obvious that he believes, mistakenly as we're going to see in a moment, no matter how righteous and good and godly and passionate this man is, he still can be mistaken. He believes that the West Side tribes are breaking God's commands regarding worship. You can reference that in Deuteronomy chapter 12. He also believes that they're committing the same sin that he confronted back in the wilderness with the professing believers who were having sex in or next to the church building. This is the sin of Peor in the text. Go to Numbers 25, check it out. As well as the sin that was dealt with earlier in Joshua with Achan, who kept items that were designed for destruction. Go back to Joshua 7, test that. Context, context, context. So the east side tribes under Phineas's leadership are super concerned about what? Obedience to God and holiness at the personal level as well as the corporate level. So out of this second portion, it seems like a good meaning of this text would be that personal and corporate holiness is a very serious matter for God's people. Look at the third section of the text, verses 21 through 29. In that section, you see the West Side tribes responding to the conflict. People of Reuben, people of Gad, people of half-tribe of Manasseh, they respond to the East Side tribe's accusation. That's what we do. Someone disagrees with us, or someone does something that doesn't make any sense to us, we accuse them of things, don't we? our minds do <clears throat> so they respond to the east side tribes accusation of disobedience the accusation of rebellion the accusation of uh, unfaithfulness the accusation of sin and they respond to that by affirming that they actually do love the lord hey you're accusing me of this but i actually do love the lord and they respond by saying that the lord uh, knows their hearts one of the one of the primary interesting aspects of walking through conflict is being able to confess that, you know what, the Lord knows my heart, and you are not God. And the Lord knows your heart, and I am not God. But a lot of times we want to be the Holy Spirit in someone else's life, and we want to tell them why they did what they did. That's called assuming motivation. That's dangerous. That's called manipulation. So, they affirm that they love the Lord. The Lord knows their hearts. If these accusations are true, they say, then they really shouldn't be spared. 
The Lord should have his vengeance upon them, they say. So they essentially affirm this, okay? They affirm that if their opponents' accusations are actually true, then their opponents are right in seeking godly justice. They affirm that. And then they go on to say that their opponents have actually judged them wrongfully, though. They're not rebelling, though it may appear on the outside that way. They're not rebelling. They merely want to make sure that future generations know that even though there's a massive river dividing them, that they do serve the Lord just as their brothers in the east do. In other words, the massive altar they've built is not for literal sacrifices. It's not meant to undermine the importance of the actual altar in the east. It's only a copy that is meant to be a witness or a reminder of who they love, who they obey, who they cling to, and who they serve. That's what it's meant for. It seems like reputation. A witness of reputation is a very important matter for God's people too. The fourth thing we see in the text is verses 30-34 when we see the conflict resolved. Phineas and his ten leaders from the east side tribes, they, they backed down uh, from their holy war. Why? Because they realized that their previous accusations against their brothers, rightly founded as they appeared, were actually unjustified. They're unjustified in light of the west side tribe's explanation. They're not rebelling against the Lord. Therefore, they are not in danger of God's judgment as it previously appeared. So Phineas, man of integrity that he is, this is a point that fascinates me because oftentimes in modern day conflict, rather than admitting that my assumptions were wrong and then retreating, we actually try to find things that that person says that uh, somehow support our predetermined judgments about them. Phineas doesn't do that. Phineas is a leader of integrity. He leads his war council back to the rest of Israel, and they give an honest account of what the West Side tribes actually explained to them. I pause there for a moment and can't tell you how many times I have sat in front of others and explained my intentions and my reasons to only then be mischaracterized the very next day. And I'm sure that you all have experienced that as well. Painful. Very painful. Phineas does a very good job. It's an honest account. And all of Israel found the report to be good, so they stopped talking about making war. Final note that we see here in these verses is the two and a half west side tribes naming the altar witness. For, they said, it is a witness between us that the Lord is God. In other words, the conflict is resolved. The massive altar is now a physical witness between the west side and the east side, declaring that the Lord is God. So it seems like lordship is a very important matter for God's people. Done a lot of contextual work here. Dug into the context quite a bit, right? We've kind of done some circles of context. I think you've seen that as we've kind of spread that out to other passages. Um question now becomes what? How do I feel about the text? 
could be, how do I feel about the preacher who's preaching the text? Can I just say that that that's a, I don't, I don't know that that's really in there. We do have a tendency to judge preaching based on the way that the preacher makes us feel rather than judging it based on the content being delivered, whether the content itself is faithful or not. I also think that when we go to the scriptures and we study on our own, we oftentimes read those scriptures through the lens of the voice of our favorite content deliverer, whoever that may be for you. And I I think it's hard work for us, for me too, to strip away those voices, faithful as they may be, and, and lean into relationship with the Holy Spirit and say, okay, Spirit, I need you to come I need you to make a gospel application to my heart in the places that I am wrestling and struggling that are faithful to the meaning of the text. So um, spent a lot of time doing that this week. I wish I could explain to you all of the different places of conflict that I've gotten to experience this week. Can't. Because we don't have time. Plain and simple. It's been a week. I didn't finish this message until about 11.30 last night. had it written three different times. It's changed directions three different times. The core meaning of the text, I think, has stayed the same. But my heart being prepared to say what I think I'm to say, not so much. How does the gospel apply to what we've just read? You'll see these questions on the next screen. As we just learned that um, loving God... Holiness, reputation, lordship, these are very important topics for God's people to wrestle with. We've also witnessed in the text how conflict can easily erupt within a group of people who are attempting to live out those four things. Conflict is a very real thing in our world. I actually, at one point, had this message written around an application of Ten Commandments of Conflict Resolution. Implied in the text, I think. Probably would have been a gross misapplication of the text, I think. So I don't think it was written for that purpose. Not that you couldn't learn some good things about resolving conflict from it, but reality is conflict is a very real thing. There isn't a family or a nation hasn't been touched by conflict since the beginning. And turn on any news channel today for about 30 seconds, read any newspaper, I think you find it full of conflict. So uh, the question became for me is how can I help us not feel good about ourselves, not feel overly bad about ourselves, but how can I help us feel what's happening in the text? How can I help us experience what's happening in the text? Because that's an important aspect for us, to get our hearts, our emotions, and our feelings, our desires to connect with what's happening in the text, right? Because oftentimes you read the words and it just feels feels cold. So, how can it help us to feel the same sense of conflict in this text that the players in this text felt? Obviously, a few of us could go grab swords and we could line up on either side from each other, right, and start yelling at each other and do that. We're not going to do that. 
How can I intentionally, in some regard, antagonize us to feel the urgency, to feel the fear, to feel uh, the anger and the hatred in this text? Uh, Maybe even to feel the sweet release of the resolution of the conflict. How can I help us to feel that so that we might grasp what's happening here? I'm going to do that by talking about the church in America from my perspective for a minute. I would imagine that all of you will feel some kind of conflict with what I'm about to say. I don't imagine that I'm going to get crucified out front after preaching. Heard that from Randy Madison one time when he preached his final series at E Free, when he talked about preaching through Revelation. I was fearful each week that might be what happened. Because in some regard, he was confronting different ideologies and theologies that had crept into the church. So many of you, when I say I'm going to talk about my perspective of the American church for a moment, you already feel conflicted. So please take a deep breath. Please try to hear my heart as I remember that my job is not to tickle ears. My job is not to tickle ears with modern day, so-called, evangelical, easy messages of beliefism. My job is to help us as a church get to a place where we cry out in desperation for the power of the gospel. That is my one and only aim. It was the aim that the Apostle Paul had, so I feel as though I'm in good company. When I survey the church, especially in America today, I see a subculture of people who are shackled in the chains of conflict on a very bloody battlefield of war between the so-called conservative right and the so-called liberal left. I don't understand how people who claim to be Christians, who claim to study the Word of God, claim to study the Scriptures, could on the one side of this battlefield protest abortion vehemently, but not give the same amount of energy to protesting our president's sinful words and behaviors. I don't understand. Some of our leading Christian voices have hailed him as a Christian. On the other side of the battlefield are people that I don't understand equally. They claim to be Christian too. They claim to study their scriptures too. They protest the president's sinful actions and words, but they give a pass to people who love to kill babies. And they openly accept just about any kind of sin as though it's okay, as though it's normal. And I think all of this makes every one of us look really foolish. When the Bible uses the word fool, you know, you look at Jesus, who was he talking to? Not the big battle world out there. He was talking to his own people. The religious people of his day would say, you are fools. That's the context for using the word, mostly. So, we need to be careful about the context of how we use our words in and out of the church. Makes us look foolish and hypocritical. Some people would argue that the reason that this is all happening is because the postmodern mindset has infected our nation. That's one camp. 
Another camp would argue that this is happening because the modern mindset hasn't completely been eradicated. That's another camp. Another camp of people would argue that secularism has infiltrated our country. Another camp would argue that millennials have ruined everything. I don't know. Do you know? Funny thing is, is that I have heard all of these arguments and more from what appears to be well-meaning, Bible-believing, to use the words of the world outside of our church, Bible-thumping would be what's indicted against us, right? Self-proclaimed Christians who have proof texts to support all their points ripped out of context oftentimes. The problem is that most of us sit in this room and we don't think that this could happen to us. We just don't believe it. We, we think that our, the people across town who are worshiping in the so-called cult, they lost it, but we didn't. Thank God for our righteousness. While never knowing that we could be whitewashed tombs, Could be. If this is the state of the church today, if my assessment is anywhere close to true at the national or maybe even the global level, then I want you to imagine how that would affect entire denominations. Imagine how that would affect local churches. Imagine how this affects families. Imagine how this affects individuals and the thing that i realized as i wrote this part last night is how we we wonder why the divorce rates in the church mirror that of the world around us picture i see of the church in america especially is an all-out ideological war that is sometimes oftentimes devoid of the gospel i think that we have traded the power of the gospel for a political party on either side of the aisle, along with a mindset that says that it's okay to compromise so long as we are only compromising on our perspective of the lesser of two evils. Heaven forbid. If anyone else holds to a different interpretation of what the lesser of two evils actually is. Because at that point, when someone challenges our presuppositions of what the lesser of two evils is, what do we have? You have grounds for an all-out assault. I think this is the state of the American church today. And I don't want us to live there. I, I personally believe that we would do well if we just simply slowed down a little bit. In all of our wars, that we rage against all things that appear to be ungodly and unholy. I really do believe that we would do well if we began to get a gospel-centered worldview. I really do. Again, my intent was to help us feel what was happening in this text. The hatred, the anger, the fear, the disgust. Right? 
the sense of that conflict, to help us feel that, based around two groups that hold Bibles in their hands. That was my intent. My last aim here as I wrap it up is to argue a minute for a gospel-centered worldview. I'm not talking about a biblical worldview that has been salt and peppered with a conservative or a liberal language or leaning. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about a biblical worldview that has been saturated in the gospel. That's something I want to argue for from the scriptures. I'm talking about a gospel-centered worldview that is grounded in the message of the cross, saturated in the message of a bloody cross, saturated in the message of an empty tomb, saturated in a message of the hope of heaven as our source of strength. Now, I'm not a very courageous man. You have all heard me at times confessing my fear. I don't think I would have done as well as Phineas. If I was in the shoes of the two and a half West Side tribes, I probably would have felt very weak in my knees as I looked into the eyes of my brothers from across the river. I can't imagine what it might have felt like in this text to have been outnumbered by the nine and a half tribes to two and a half. That's a scary moment to be that outnumbered, I think. I don't know how I would have reacted or responded to that conflict, but I do know this. I know that we serve a better Joshua. I know that a better Joshua has promised us a better inheritance. I know that he has called us to a better obedience in the gospel. I know that Jesus is a better Savior. I know that he has promised us a better heaven than we could ever experience here in any kingdom on this earth. Now, I don't know uh, what kingdom you're in today that is being tossed back and forth on a battlefield of conflict. <coughs> kingdom seems to be a big piece of what's happening here. Kingdom of Israel is being established in a place, in a land. I don't know what kingdom it is for you. It's getting ripped up with conflict. It might be the kingdom of your marriage. It might be the kingdom of uh, your family. It might be the kingdom of some friendship. The kingdom of singleness. It might be the kingdom of your workplace. Either way, the kingdom of heaven has been manifested on this earth through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Because of Christ, we can openly confess our own sins as well as the sins of our nation, which I wish we would do more often. Like Nehemiah. We can beg Jesus for forgiveness. We can beg Him for restoration. We can beg Him for fortitude. We can beg Him for integrity as we submit our lives in faith-filled trust in his work at the cross and the empty tomb. We can trust the Holy Spirit as our helper, our counselor, and our advocate to lead us into the truth, the Spirit's job. 
It is through Jesus, our Lord, who is God, that we can find any rest and any assurance for a better kingdom than any of the kingdoms of this earth. So my final word to us is that we can trust in the power of the Spirit to enable us to love God, to love people who are on the other side of the river from us. I don't know who it is that's on the other side of the river for you today. When it comes to loving the them in this world, the name of our church should say it all. The original vision from when we planted the well was to be a church that would connect with the thems of this world. What would happen and what would it be like next week? We all walked in. There were a bunch of women here that were scantily dressed because somebody in our church started a ministry to the strip club over on Highway 6. What would the uh, response be from us? I mean, just be honest. How much self-righteousness would well up inside of you? can't believe they're here. They put some clothes on. My husband might see. I mean, just... What if you came in next week, and a young man that I met yesterday who is a um, bisexual and has a, has a beautiful voice saying a half a worship song for us in our living room. What would it be like if he walked in next week and I asked him to sing that song for us? What would you do? I fear that what you would do I know what my own heart does sometimes when faced with these things. Pray for us. Father, Please let us be a church that loves the people who are across the river from us. In Jesus' name, amen. As we take communion today, I want to remind you that you were once you were once an orphan. You once were no different than the woman at the well. And uh, you once had no place to call home and no family because of your sin. You once were a foreigner trying to get into a foreign land when the door wasn't close to you. These implications of the gospel move me and motivate me because the blood of Christ was poured out for the orphans, sinners, outcasts, and those people out there, those fools, could come, be part of a family who loves them, welcomes them, and seeks their transformation. You're listening to an audio message from The Well. 
a gospel-centered church family in Hastings, Nebraska that exists to grow disciples and glorify God. For more information, please visit www.thewellhastings.com.